Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. Did the Jesus of Mormonism have a physical body in the pre-existence? Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. And with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We've been going through an article that was published in the December 2022 edition of the Leahona Magazine. It was an article titled, What the First Vision Reveals About the Father and the Son. It was written by Mark A. Matthews, who is an LDS educator. He works with the seminaries and institutes that are owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's also an adjunct BYU professor. Well, we're finding a lot of inconsistencies in this. Now, I'm not saying that he isn't teaching a correct understanding of LDS theology, The problem is a correct understanding of LDS theology tends to many times conflict with what the Bible has to say. In yesterday's show, we were going through the paragraph where Mr. Matthews cites a short clip from the Anglican 39 Articles of Religion, where he says, many people believe God is a being, quote, without body, parts, or passions. And as I mentioned yesterday, I think Mr. Matthews, as well as many Latter-day Saints, misunderstands what the 39 Articles is trying to get across when it makes that comment about God being without body parts and passions. The Bible specifically teaches that God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If that be the case, he doesn't really have a need for parts, Though the God of Mormonism certainly has a need for parts because he is going to be procreating all of us in the pre-existence before we take on this mortality. But I think the word passions is also misunderstood by many Latter-day Saints. And I think Mr. Matthews shows his hand at that misunderstanding later on in this article. I want to just state here that when you look at commentaries from Anglicans, those who are members of the Church of England, When they look at Article 1 in the 39 Articles, that word passions is not at all implying that they believe God is not capable of expressing love or concern or compassion. Most certainly, they do believe that. The Bible does say things like that. But what this really means is that the God mentioned in Article 1 of the 39 Articles of Religion is free from bodily desires and impulses. There's nothing new that he can learn that would make him make a course correction, and he's not going to act out in any type of a sinful manner either, even though in yesterday's show we talked about how in talking to some Latter-day Saints, they certainly have no problem believing that their God, while he was a human, because that's what Joseph Smith taught, that their God was once a man, that while he was a human, he could have very well did sinful things. How sinful, they don't know, but certainly he was capable of doing that. The idea that God was once a man is anathema to all monotheistic religions. I mean, uh, for Jews, for Christians, for Muslims, very clearly God has always been God. Numbers 23 verse 19 in the Pentateuch says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. 
And we talked yesterday, Bill, about the possibility if God was a sinner, then he must have been a person who repented. He must have repented successfully in order to become the God of this world. That is not a biblical teaching. Well, in that same paragraph, Mr. Matthews, when talking about the first vision, he says that it reveals that God has a body and form like a man and that we are literally created in God's image. Although the Bible states this in its first chapter, and then in parentheses he says, see Genesis 1.27. He goes on to say, the first vision confirms that it is literal. The first vision began to reveal once again who God is and what our relationship to him is. In it, our Father in heaven began to reveal himself anew. Let's go back to Genesis 1.27. Because when you read that in the King James, what does it say? Now, I should preface this before Eric reads it, that the King James Version is the official version of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now, what does it say in the Joseph Smith translation, however? And this is key. Remember, God commanded Joseph Smith to come forth with a new translation of the scriptures. Smith said he finished that translation in July of 1833. And this is what we find in Genesis 1:27 of the Joseph Smith translation. And I, God, said unto mine only begotten, which was with me from the beginning, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and it was so. Did you notice a detail that Joseph Smith throws in there that is not found in any other Bible version, including the King James Version? That is the portion where he says, And I, God, said unto mine only begotten, In other words, when this conversation is taking place in Genesis chapter 1, God the Father is speaking to his only begotten, which was with him from the beginning. Any Latter-day Saint would tell you that must be a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, who was referred to in the pre-existence as Jehovah. That's how he was understood to be called. If that's true, and Joseph Smith's translation is telling us a truism, we have to ask the question, if you're going to assume that God the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, which is what Joseph Smith taught, did Jesus at this time have a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's? I would argue that Mormon theology gives us a resounding no He didn't have a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's at the time this conversation was taking place in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Why is that a problem? You cannot assume that God the Father has a body of flesh and bones unless you can demonstrate that Jesus at this time had a body of flesh and bones, which according to Mormon theology, he did not. Let me give you a couple of supporting uh, statements that will help show that this is really what Mormonism teaches. I'm going to go to the 1916 First Presidency, and this is found in Messages of the First Presidency, Volume 5, pages 31 and 32. It says, In all his dealings with the human family, Jesus the Son has represented and yet represents Elohim, his Father, in power and authority. This is true of Christ in his pre-existent, anti-mortal, or unembodied state, in the which he was known as Jehovah. 
and also uh, Daniel H. Ludlow on page 105 of a companion to your study of the Old Testament. He says, the only begotten of God was the pre-earthly Jehovah who came to earth as Jesus Christ. Thus God the Father was speaking to Jesus Christ on that occasion. And then he goes on to say, the terms in our image and after our likeness indicate that God had bodily parts just as man does. This truth has been taught by Joseph Smith. But the problem is, we know Jesus didn't. So when God the Father says to Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jehovah, in our image, it can't mean a body of flesh and bones because as you've read here, we've got citations from LDS leaders saying he didn't have a body of flesh and bones at that time. In other words, you're making an assumption, even though 50% of the two in the conversation we know did not have a body of flesh and bones. Let me just give you one more. April 1921, Charles W. Penrose, a member of the First Presidency, said this, The Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit as Jesus Christ was when he was Jehovah. He was Jehovah from the beginning of the world, according to the history we have in the Old Testament scriptures. He was a personage of spirit, and he came here to the earth that he might be exactly like his brethren, like his father, and have a body made out of the lower elements of the universe. And that comes from Conference Report, page 12 from 1921. Bill, I want to say that article that where I'm reading these citations from come from an article that you wrote. It's mrm.org slash genesis hyphen, the number one, hyphen 26, hyphen 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And if you're interested, that would be an article you ought to read. I think it's unfortunate that many Latter-day Saint educators, including Mr. Matthews here, assumes that that word image seems to be referring primarily to God's body. As Christians, the image of God or the Imago Dei has such a, a much broader application And it's sad that a lot of Latter-day Saints don't get this. I want to read to you a portion from one of the Bibles that I have. It's an annotated Bible, and it has a little section in there that explains what the image of God is and how we are to understand what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is talking about. It says, The scope of God's image in humanity is not specified in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, but the context of the passage helps to define it. Genesis 1, 1 through 25, sets forth God as personal, rational, having intelligence and will, creative, ruling over the world he has made, and morally admirable in all he creates is good. Plainly, God's image will reflect these qualities. Verses 28 through 30 show God blessing the newly created humans and setting them to rule creation as his representatives and deputies. The human capacity for communication and relationship with both God and other humans appears as a further facet of the image. So you can see our understanding of the image of God certainly goes beyond this I would say misunderstanding, that it's saying that because humans have a body of flesh and bones, that that automatically infers that God the Father has a body of flesh and bones. As I said earlier, the LDS Church claims that it believes and practices things as they think the early Christians believed and practiced. But yet, where do we find in history that Christians were believing that God has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's? 
We don't see that in passages that clearly say that God is spirit from John chapter 4. You wouldn't get the understanding that he has a body of flesh and bones from that passage. Now, you could try to read into that passage and say perhaps that God has a spirit, but that's not what the passage is saying. It says God is spirit. So that interpretation really wouldn't be a good interpretation. You would have to read that into the passage in order to draw a conclusion that you already have. You're reading your presupposition into the scriptures. We're not going to find early Christians believing in tritheism, and we're not going to see anywhere in the early church that Christians were believing that God has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. Unfortunately, because Mr. Matthews already has that presupposition, he's going to kind of springboard off of that presupposition, and that's going to have a huge importance in how he understands a lot of these Bible verses. And one other thing I want to point out is that this is the only verse that he has to support that idea, Genesis 1.27, and I think we've clearly shown that's not a good verse for them to use. In tomorrow's show, we're going to continue looking at this article written by an LDS educator, Mr. Mark A. Matthews, an article that he wrote in the December 2022 Liahona magazine titled, What the First Vision Reveals About the Father and the Son. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.